Thanks, guys, so much for having me and for uh, enduring the emotional roller coaster of last night that I was going through. Um, but it's been such a blessing just thinking through uh, what discipleship is, what the call of discipleship is. And it's a lifestyle, and it affects the way we talk, that it transforms when we pray, how we pray, who we pray with. And I think it also um, kind of guides how we enter each other's worlds and help each other bear burdens. And the specific burden I want us to think through this morning is sexual lust. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. And this is the lens we're looking through. This is not just a message on if you struggle with lust, here's how you should approach it. So this is why I think it is important for everybody. Because some of you might be here and you would say, you know, lust isn't a struggle for me. It's not something that I mainly think about or I'm trying to deal with. But it is a struggle for people around you in your life. There, It is a common struggle. And so it's important for all of us, to, I think, to really know how to walk with other people as they battle this sin, both men and women. So we're looking at Matthew uh, chapter 5. Let me read this, verses 27 through 30, and then I'll pray for us. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Let me pray for us. Father God. I thank you for your word to us, that you don't minimize sin, you don't coddle it, you don't um, give it a place in our lives, rather you speak savagely about it, that we cut it off, that we rage war against it, that this, this life is not a cruise ship but a battleship and we are fighting for your kingdom and your glory against the forces of darkness. Lord, I pray that there would be a wartime mentality in the way we make disciples, that we would fight for a passion, not only for our own worship of you, but for the worship that is around us, the worship that is in the hearts of our friends and family and our churches. And Lord, I, I pray that you would um, just equip us this morning to know how to pursue you and come alongside others to pursue you and, and glorify you in this area of, of loving others well rather than lusting. And so, Lord, I just thank you for this time that we get to share together in Christ's name, I pray. Amen. Well, I want to begin our study this morning by sharing a little bit about my own journey that God has taken me on in learning how to kill this particular sin. It's very dear to me, this topic, because in my life, especially junior high through college, lust felt kind of like this hopeless prison for me. It was one of my major sins. I have experienced some great tragedies in my life, but no outside trial has caused me more discouragement and depression than the constant inward battle of losing the struggle with lust. So this is because no outside trial can harm my relationship with God. Only my sin can interfere with that. The betrayal of a friend, the death of a family member, the abuse of an enemy, the battle with disease, those are all tragic. But no outside trial can depress me more, can discourage me more than my own sin, 
because no outside trial has the power to touch my closeness with God. Only my sin can hurt that. In fact, if I'm pursuing God, the outside trials just make me pursue him more, enjoy him more. This is why I love knowing how to destroy sin in my life, fight it. Because I don't want anything to keep me from my Heavenly Father. He is the one who supports me in the trials. He's working in the trials to make something good out of every betrayal and abuse and disease and loss that I go through. And the only thing in this world that can put distance between me and him is my own sin. This is why I love what I get to do for a living as a counseling pastor. I absolutely love walking with people down paths of sin and suffering to help them experience God's truth, invade their darkness, and give them hope and freedom in him. And that's exactly what we do when we make disciples. We walk with people down paths of sin and suffering and help them see the hope of Christ. Now, some of you know what I'm talking about, but, but some of you might not know because you think the worst disappointments in life are the things that happen to you, things that are on the outside. Because, and that might be also because you think the greatest joys are on the outside, kind of getting that dream job, graduating from your dream school. But if your greatest joy is your relationship with God, then sin will be your greatest pain. It'll be your greatest disappointment. For most of my life, I had a hard time seeing sin and fighting sin and helping others fight sin because my understanding of sin was so shallow. One summer when I was in college, I was a cabin leader at a Christian camp. And I was having a one-on-one -on -one meeting, a session with a 12-year-old student. And he confessed to me his struggle with lust and pornography. So this young man, when he was talking to me, he was just desperate. He'd been living in this prison for over a year, and he just looked up at me with hopeless tears kind of streaming down his face, and he said, does it ever get any better? Now, I was still in college, so my heart was swimming with idols. My thought life was crippled with lust. So I thought I was the last guy on earth who should be talking to this 12-year-old guy about lust. But just think for a moment, how would you answer his question? How would you pray for him? What would you say to him? Would you take him to the hope of the gospel? I'm sorry, would you take him to the hope of heaven? That like someday there will be no more sin? Would you take him to the, would you tell him to kind of to count the cost of following Christ and cut out every source of sexual temptation? Would you tell him that he just needs lots of accountability? All those things are good, but it could just leave him wishing he was dead so he'd be in heaven and not sinning, or putting all his hope in people and fences that could block him from what he really wants. If what Jesus is saying is true in Matthew 5, that all adultery comes from our hearts, then how would you address his heart? What tools do you have right now to address your own heart? So lust is not, like all sin, right? It's not primarily a nurture problem. It doesn't happen mainly because of your environment, and it doesn't keep happening mainly because of an addictive chemical dependency that develops in our bodies. As Jesus says in verse 28, it comes from our heart. So more than anything else, that is what we need to understand to know how to fight sin and to help others fight sin. We must fight it in the heart. So in order to help us do that and to help us help others, we're going to see from this passage three steps to understanding and fighting lust in our hearts. And I think you can use this outline with most other struggles as well. We're going to look at how we recognize worship and help people understand themselves to be worshipers. 
And then from there, moving toward repentance and how we help people understand repentance. And then practical changes we need to make in life. Now let's start with recognizing worship. Verses 20, verse 28 says, looking with intent, looking with desire. Anyone who looks with lustful intent. A worshiper looks at God, the world, people, and themselves with desires and intentions. Whether for good or bad, every worshiper, that's all of us, looks. We engage the world with desires and wants, and we interpret God, ourselves, and this world through those desires. So in this passage, Jesus has just finished drawing a direct line between anger and murder, and he says they're the same in God's eyes because the intention of the heart is the same. The desire of the heart is the same. So whether I'm putting a knife to someone's throat or giving someone a cold shoulder, underneath both actions, our hearts are the same before God. Maybe I want revenge. Maybe I want control of a situation. Maybe I want justice. And I'm not trusting God for those things. Well, in our verses this morning, Jesus is drawing another direct line between lust and adultery. And he says, these are the same in God's eyes because the intention of the heart, the desire of the heart is the same. This is how he starts off verse 27 and 28. He tells them, look, people have been telling you, keep the seventh commandment. Right? Don't take your neighbor's wife. But they've been explaining it out of context. The seventh commandment finds its roots in the tenth commandment. One of the examples Moses gives in the tenth commandment for do not covet, it, covet is do not look lustfully and long, longingfully after your neighbor's wife. Don't look with lustful intention. So Jesus is not trying to reinvent the wheel here or undermine the Old Testament. He's just trying to teach it in its context. The look of lust in the 10th commandment has the same heart as adultery in the 7th commandment. And God cares about the heart, the part of us that says, I want, the desire factory that controls our worship. So Jesus is defining adultery at the level of the heart when he says it is lustful intent. He defines it at the level of a controlling desire. So we can define lust this way in this passage. It is a sexual desire that controls how you see someone, think about them, and relate to them. This is the definition based on kind of what Jesus is saying here. A sexual desire that controls how you see someone, think about them, and relate to them. So have you looked with lustful intent? You've committed adultery in God's eyes. Hopefully you see how that definition is different than just attraction. It is a controlling desire. Well, let's go back to the camp and help this teenage guy. Right? The first step in discipling him in this area and helping him fight lust is to help him understand he is a worshiper, and therefore he looks at this life through the lens of worship, of desires, and those desires reveal who and what he worships. So we want to start with that big picture, that we look around our lives as worshipers. And it's actually a really good thing. We're, we're supposed to look at this world through the eyes of worship and look at God's creation and everything that he made to, that declares his glory according to Psalm 19 and worship him better because of the things he's put in our lives. The problem is we believe lies about the stuff we're looking at. And that's the next place you would go with this young man or young woman that you're walking with, helping them understand not only that they are worshipers, but that our worship goes wrong as we believe lies. And Jesus addresses this with the phrase, for it is better. Now, why would Jesus need to say, for it is better? 
be injured in this life than to spend eternity in hell. And he doesn't just say it once, he says it twice. And he doesn't just say it twice here, he says it two times in Matthew 18. It is better to lose your hand or gouge out an eye than to spend eternity in hell. Um, one of the many edifying conversations we get to have as a staff at Lighthouse is how much money would someone have to give you in order to lose a limb? Like how much would you would someone have to pay you for, to give up your eye or your hand? So I want to just do a quick survey here. All right, who would give up their right hand for a hundred thousand dollars? Yeah, no, just right hand. The right hand. I mean, not to discriminate. I'm oh, sorry, just to, you know, keep it going with Matthew. All right, how about a million dollars? You give up your right hand for a million dollars. How about? How about a hundred million dollars? hundred million dollars. So there's some people who know the value of a dollar. That's good. Okay. How about a billion dollars? One billion dollars. You're going to give up your right hand. One billion dollars. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, so there's some people uh, debating, what, okay, what would I do with that money? Who would, who would be the controller investing it for me? Okay. All right, but how about this? What if giving up your right hand was the only way to go to heaven instead of hell? Like, who would give up their right hand? <laughs> Everyone. Right, good. Praise God. I'm glad you're here. <laughs> right? Who would disagree with that statement? Right? Who would honestly say, no, hell is better than losing a hand in this life? And so what is Jesus trying to clarify here? Why is he repeating himself, and why does he say it multiple times in the same gospel? Well, he is pushing against something. He's pushing against the false idea that this life matters more than eternity. He's pushing against the idea that this world has something that God doesn't. That is the lie he's exposing. That is the lie that robs our worship. He says, for it is better because he's pushing against the false notion that goes straight to the core of our worship of God. It addresses the lie of lust that says, the person you're looking at, the world you're living in, it has something for you that God doesn't. It's better. So what happens to my worship when I start believing that lie? Like this world becomes more real and more important than eternity. A guy or a girl, someone made by God, becomes bigger and more important than God himself. So when Jesus says, for it is better that you lose one of your members and that your whole body be thrown into hell, he's not using a scare tactic or making his followers physically harm themselves. He is pleading with you not to put temporary pain and pleasure over eternal pain and pleasure. Because that's what lust wants you to do. He's saying you cannot weigh eternity with a moment in front of your laptop or an evening in your girlfriend's apartment. Jesus is being as obvious as he can because the deception of lust is so subtle. When we sin like this... We exalt temporary pain and pleasure over eternal pain and pleasure. In the gospel, God has given us pleasures that are real, satisfying, never-ending, yours, available in Christ right now. And he's given you a vital truth that will save your heart from lust. So in discipleship, you can say to this young man or young woman, you can say to this camper in the face, this lie that hijacks your worship, it doesn't go mainly after your behavior. It goes after your faith. It doesn't come up to you and say, hey man, do this bad thing. Watch this movie. Go to this website. Click on this. It comes to you and says, 
Believe this pleasure is better. Believe joy and comfort, acceptance, freedom. Believe life is better here. The power of temptation is not in what it tells you to do, but in what it convinces you to believe about God. In some way, every sin does this. Every sin comes from believing God could not or would not provide for our needs. So to save ourselves, we put our faith in the lies that our idols tell us. And this is exactly what happened in the garden. This is what Eve did. She stopped seeing God as her provider. The temptation in the garden was not, hey Eve, bite the fruit, bite the fruit, bite the fruit. Just like your temptation is not, hey, click here, click there, do this bad thing. The temptation is always, God is not enough. God is not enough. God's a holdout. God wouldn't give you that. God, that's something separate from God that is physical. Think for a second. What do you believe that God will not give you? And that is where you will find your idols. Do you, do you cling to an idol of a relationship because someone promises you acceptance and you just don't feel like God is giving you that? Every idol promises that it alone can meet our deepest needs in this life. And that is what causes us to surrender our faith to them. The strength of the lie is that it tells you your idol is a better provider than your Heavenly Father. So Jesus says, for it is better because the lie that would tell you your hand is more important than heaven is the same lie that says the creation is greater than the creator. Once you understand that you are a worshiper and that all sin has its roots in that lie that misdirects our worship, the next step is repentance, turning away from the idol and the lies that have kind of taken control of our hearts and hijacked our worship, turning back to Christ. So that's where we start in discipleship. We need to recognize that we're worshipers and understand how worship goes wrong. Second, let's talk about repentance. How do we find our way back to worshiping Christ? So as we examine repentance together, we're going to look at it in three parts. Conviction, confession, and change. First, conviction. Kind of discerning the sorrow over sin. So let's go back to that camper I was talking to when he was 12. He's obviously convicted. He's got those tears going down his face. He's asking me, does it ever get any better? He feels guilty. So imagine me ask him, what is it about this sin that makes you so sad, that grieves you? And he says, I just see how much this sin has affected my time and my energy, how much it's harmed my ability to love people and find joy in my life. I want my life back. I could say, absolutely. I want to do this with you. Let's go. Let's fight this sin together. But has he fully understand why God has given him guilt over his sin? Guilt exists primarily to tell me there is something wrong between me and God. But the fact is we often minimize or forget our sin is against God. Because we kind of get caught up in the dramatic effects of our sin. We live inside all the pain and the consequences and the and they cause the greatest grief. But Scripture calls that worldly sorrow, and it doesn't lead us to deep repentance. It doesn't like restore who Christ is meant to be in our lives. We're kind of circling the drain of our own self-condemnation. Keith Lambert, in his book, Finally Free, describes our kind of post-lust mental guilt trip as condemning self-talk. See if this resonates with you. This is what he says. We typically respond to moral failures with mental punishments. I'm terrible. I'm awful. 
What if someone finds out I'm such a hypocrite? Maybe I'm just a Christian. Maybe I'm just not a Christian. He says mental punishments are not helpful because they deal with sin in a self-centered way instead of a Christ-centered way. It has you standing center stage as you reflect on what you think about what you have done and as you describe what you think you deserve because of what you did. It's all about you. The problem is there's too much of you in all of this. You need to move the focus to Christ for it to be godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow from sin makes us blind to the agony of the cross, and, and we miss how guilt is designed to bring us back to God by causing us to weep over Christ's pain more than our own. We see the ways we have replaced God in our lives. The experience of guilt or remorse is the first sign that the Spirit is working in our hearts. But we need to ask ourselves and those we disciple, what's causing this sorrow? And where are these tears coming from? What are you grieving over? According to 2 Corinthians 7.10, godly sorrow over sin leads you back to God because you see Christ as the victim of your sin. You have replaced him in your life with something else. So we ask, are they convicted before God over their sin? Or do they see Jesus as the number one victim of the sin, or is he secondary? Godly sorrow is motivated by and focused on God. So understanding how sorrow after our sin is from God and meant to bring us back to God, then that helps us move to the next point, which is confession. It helps clarify how we talk to God about our sin. Right? So confession is this next step in repentance. How do we process this sin, pray about sin before God? If you play sports and kind of lose a big, really important game, what does the coach talk to you about in the locker room afterwards? Does he say, like, whoops, like, oops, let's not talk about it, let's deny it, let's pretend like it didn't happen? Right, probably not. I hope not. Yeah, you reflect, you confront, you're honest, you examine what happened, you learn, you find hope, you move forward. And I'd say our confessions, our times of prayer with God, I wish I could like take our whole time to talk about that kind of prayer. Confession, though, is like this locker room conversation with God after losing the big game. It takes reflection and honesty and scripture and focusing on Christ in the midst of disappointment. But when done rightly, it not only brings you back to God, but it brings you a step further in battling sin because you're looking beyond the tears and pain to better understand the ugliness of sin, the deceitfulness of your own heart, and the beauty of Christ. Confession comes from the Greek word to say the same thing, homologo, to say the same thing. So in confession, I'm trying to say what God says about my sin and idolatry. I'm not trying to minimize or run past it. So I can say more than just, please forgive me, God. I have no idea where that lustful thought came from. Or if, if another sin is this, you're like, please forgive me, God. I don't know why I said that crazy thing to my friend. Please forgive me, God, because I don't know why I got upset at my parents. We can actually understand our hearts better and take the time to process our sin. You can actually talk to God about the misplaced worship, the lies that were in the temptation, and be guided with Scripture to help describe sin in all its ugliness and foolishness Right, something like this. You know, scripture says, Father, that I have committed adultery in my heart. So when we do that, we are getting closer to the meaning of confession. I'm starting to say what God says about sin. 
And a deeper confession not only brings you back to God, it brings you farther away from sin so that when temptation comes again, you can start to see the red flags earlier on. I'm aware, I know how to, I talk to God about my struggles, about my sins, and, I can, and so I can recognize them more clearly when they come. When they start, the lies start to try to steal my worship away from God. All right, so confession is the second. Um, so, we, so our confession is, our, sorry, our conviction needs to be centered on God, and a, we want to deepen our confession and see what would God say about our sin. The final step of repentance is change. Creating a diet, kind of, a, of fueling our faith with meditating on God's love. So purity is found when our hearts are so full of God's love that we look at someone with a desire for them to know and love God. They, to know and experience God's love. Right? You could say the lens of purity is a lens of Christ-like love. Rather than kind of wanting someone in a utilitarian way, I want to use them, they're an extension of my desire, I want to absorb them into my idolatry. Like, I see them as someone I want to honor and bring the riches of Christ's love to. Like, that's purity. It's not just like I'm not lusting. It's someone that I'm able to bring the riches of God's love to. This is an image bearer, someone I want to honor, someone I want to learn from, someone I want to respect. And I'd say this is why we need to daily experience God's love, so that your love for your brothers and sisters is an overflow of the love you have received. It's an extension of the first commandment that goes into the second commandment. The way I, one way I'm going to love the Lord, my God, with all my heart, my soul, my mind, and strength is to also love him with my relationships. It's an extension of the greatest commandment. This is why God forbids adultery. And God does not forbid lust because he wants you to be miserable. He forbids it because you, it cannot deliver, excuse me, because you cannot deliver the riches of God's love with lust. And he knows your joy in your relationships come as you deliver the riches of his love. That's what you were created for, to bear his image out in relationship. Lust might promise a greater closeness and a joy, but it, it delivers distance and emptiness into your life and friendships. It actually takes the very thing it's promising to give your relationships. Purity, on the other hand, as we are defining it, it, it leads to fullness and joy and peace no more shame, no more guilt, because it leads to Christ. God doesn't forbid lust because he wants us missing out on life. He forbids it because this is his universe. This is his rich reality that he has created, and he wants his love to define our relationships. He doesn't want us to miss out on experiencing his love in relationships. So do you see how this works? Our view of others will never be purified until we have a, a view of God that is purified. Jesus understands that our vision of God's love, when our vision of God's love is full, our vision for people will always be filled with uh, good intentions, discipleship intentions. So in discipleship, this is how I want to walk with someone. And not just on lust, on almost any issue. First, I want to help them see that they are a worshiper, and worship is kind of at the beginning of what goes wrong in life. Second, I want them to understand repentance. It is Understanding godly conviction and being able to process, process that in genuine confession and then begin to change. And three, we need to radically simplify. We need to make space to pursue Christ better in our lives. So we want to ask, what changes do they need to make right now? 
What changes do I need to make right now in my life? In counseling, we call it radical amputation or radical simplification. Cutting off a right hand or a right eye are metaphors to explain giving up great treasures in order to enjoy our greatest treasure more. But many times we can start to put our hope in how we restructure our lives to protect ourselves from sin. So to help us understand what radical amputation is and is not, I want to share a story from a children's book that might be familiar with to you, Frog and Toad. It's also in Heath Lambert's book, Finally Free. So in the story of Frog and Toad, Toad makes this amazing batch of cookies. And he's so overwhelmed with how amazing they taste that he invites, he hops over to Frog's place and they share in their, its deliciousness. And uh, as these two devour these incredibly tasty cookies, they quickly realize they can't stop eating them. Maybe the way you feel about like the chocolate pandas upstairs. <laughs> and just as they decide to have one last cookie, they find themselves continuing to indulge. So Frog and Toad realize that they're going to stop eating cookies. They have to do something to limit their access to them. So the rest of the story details all the steps they make, uh, take to make the cookies harder to get. They try a number of things. First, they put the cookies in a box and they put them on the, and slide it to the side then they can easily get back in the box, and they do, and they eat more cookies. So they put the cookies in a box and then tie a, a string around it, but they realize they can untie the string and still get more cookies, which they do. So they tie a string around it, and put it in the box, tie a string around it, put it on the highest shelf, but even then, the, the craving for the cookie is so strong, they can still get to it. So at kind of a final point of resolve, there, our amphibious friends decide they must throw the cookies to the birds if they're ever going to truly be free. Of, of this craving that they have. So the end of the story, they take that most radical step, they throw the cookies to the birds, and now with no more cookies to eat, Toad decides to go home and he bakes a cake. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's the story, the story of Frog and Toad. And it teaches us a critically important truth in fighting temptation. Right? Outward measures, no matter how radical they are, can never change your heart. So as you talk with your disciples, or just your friends, however you have, discipleship is a lifestyle, okay? So as you just talk about these fences you're putting up in your life, the accountability software you're putting on your phone, the changes you're making in your life, it's critical to see that the fences do not make our hearts pure. They simplify our lives and let us enjoy and worship the one who, make, who gave his life to make us pure. The fences we put up are not our hope. They create a path that allows us to run more freely and through the brokenness and evil of this world to the one who is our hope and our joy, Christ. Jesus uses serious metaphors because there should be a cost and a sacrifice to what you remove from your life. And what and who you are willing to part with also reveals how much you truly love Christ and how much you truly hate sin. Remember, we are not doing this to fight for pure, purity, we are doing these things to fight through the mountain of idols that crowd God out of our lives and hearts because we want to be close to him again. We want to enjoy him more. That is why we're serious about killing sin and removing all stumbling blocks that stand in our way of enjoying him. Sin is our greatest pain because he is our greatest joy. Finally, the loss you are willing to endure for the sake of knowing and enjoying Christ not only do you owe it to him, but it will make you more like him as you deny self. As you say no, no, no to self until it hurts, it will make you more like Christ.
His life consisted of one sacrifice after another to make it possible for us to know him. He set aside his crown. He took up our cross to come to us. What will you set aside to pursue him? What will you sacrifice to enjoy him? So we have to get serious. We have to look at our lives and restructure them. We can pray and, and beg and cry and wail of our sin. We can confess with accuracy and sincerity, but at the end of the day, repentance is seen in a changed life. So we'll need to be practical. So if you're talking to a young person or a disciplee or just a friend, what is the next small step you're going to take? Talk practically. Make a list. So what would you say to this camper who asked you through tears, does it ever get any better? If I could go back, I don't remember exactly what I said, but I would say, yes, it does get better. But you were not made to fight this alone. Can I walk with you to help you understand the battle going on in your heart? Maybe you're here this morning and you'd say, uh, Pastor Tim, I know I'm a slave of sin. Maybe not lust, maybe it's another sin. People pleasing, some other idolatry. I am just owned by this sin. It masters my life. You can be adopted this moment through faith in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for your sin if you do not know him. Or maybe you're a child of God and you're battling sin. Remember that the battle is good. Keep fighting. And I don't know exactly what each of your circle of Christian friends looks like. But here at Lighthouse, we want to be a community that fights together, that fights for each other. People might think you're weird because you don't have a browser on your phone or a computer at home or the internet. And they might think you're weird because there are moments in your free time that you take to be serious about confessing lust or confessing other sins or fighting sin, praying for the holiness of your brothers or sisters. texting to check in on how each other are doing, but we must take lust and the damage it does to our walk seriously because God takes it seriously. God was serious when he sent his son to die on the cross for our lust. Christ is serious in continually interceding for us before the throne of God. The spirit is serious about removing lust for our lives, from our lives, and the poor lost sinners who at this moment are in hell are serious about the consequences of sin. So it's not weird to daily cry out to our Heavenly Father to have light, to see our sins down to its roots so that by the Spirit you know how to fight daily and you know how to joyfully return to your Heavenly Father each day and help those around you joyfully pursue Christ and know Him and worship Him more faithfully. Hopefully this is a clear picture of what discipleship can look like. We, we are worshipers, and that's where, that's where obedience comes from. That's also where sin comes from. And as we understand the lies that hijack our worship, we must repent. Our worship needs to return to Christ. And as it returns to Christ, we want to improve how we pursue him. We want to create greater space in our lives to run more fast and hard, no matter the sacrifice, no matter what we have to give up to pursue him. I pray that this would be the story of each of our lives again and again and again, and the story of our relationships as we partner with each other in pursuing Christ together. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, I thank you for uh, your mercies in our lives, that you receive us back again and again and again. Father, our hearts are so prone to wander and go astray and turn to these 
idols that haunt us. Lord, help us to remember that Christ is better. Though our hearts rob us of our worship by telling us that there is something in this world that is better, Lord, help us to see that Christ is our only Savior. He alone is worthy. He alone is God. He alone is our creator. He alone is the one we want to give our greatest love and worship to. Lord, I pray that you would help us to know know how to have conversations about sins and struggles with each other about how to make Christ great in our lives. Lord, you have called us to this lifestyle of of disciple-making, of discipleship, and I pray that it would kind of set a good trajectory in our relationships so that Christ might be magnified in in the moments of conversation that we have, and in the prayers that we pray. Lord, may Christ be exalted. May we give grace to each other, and may we become like Christ um, as we are used by you in, in each other's lives. In Christ's name we pray.